ETF Prime is hosted by Nature Racing, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. The future is here. Introducing BNY Mellon Investment Management thematic ETFs built to deliver differentiated risk-adjusted returns through areas of societal growth and progress and powered by our multidimensional research experts' 20-plus years of thematic investing experience. ETFs trade like stocks are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. To learn more, visit im.bnymellon.com today for important disclosures and prospectuses. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me will be Rachel Legrier, head of U.S. iShares product at BlackRock. And if you look at new ETF launches this year, BlackRock's been busy. They've launched nearly 20 ETFs. And when you start drilling down into some of those products, it's clear they're making a push into active ETFs. They're now putting some of their most prominent active managers into the ETF wrapper. Uh, Names like Rick Reeder who's Chief Investment Officer of Global Fixed Income at BlackRock, and Tony Despirito, Global Chief Investment Officer of Fundamental Equities at BlackRock. We're talking about managers with strong pedigrees. And so we're going to discuss this recent push into active. I'm curious how BlackRock plans on balancing this with their low-cost passive lineup, because obviously the iShares ETF business was built on the back of passive investing. Right. That's really what's driven them to nearly two point four trillion dollars in U.S. ETF assets. So we'll talk about that. And then we're also going to discuss why iShares decided to get involved with buffer ETFs, defined outcome ETFs. They've uh, pretty significantly undercut the competition on fees in that space. So we'll get into that and really just discuss their overall approach to new launches. You know, I think some people think just given BlackRock's massive size, they throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks. And so I'm going to ask Rachel about that, and you can hear from her on uh, how they approach new products. Also joining me this week will be Phil Hanks, founder and CEO of Parabola, who back in April launched the Parabola Innovation ETF, ticker LZRD. And we're certainly going to spotlight that ETF, which uh, seeks to hold innovative or disruptive companies. But we're also going to discuss what it's like launching a product as a brand new ETF entrant, right? Someone just stepping into the ETF arena. And so if you think about this, we have the world's largest asset manager in iShares on one end of the spectrum, talking about new launches. And then we have a new ETF entrant on the other end of the spectrum doing the same. And we'll find out what Phil has learned thus far in going through the process of bringing a new ETF to market. Now, to start this week, I have on the line with me Stacy Morris, head of energy research at Vetify. And I know I say this every time she joins me, but Stacy has seriously become my favorite person covering the uh, energy sector. She simply knows this space inside and out. I always learn something new. And if you look at what's been going on within the energy sector here recently, things have turned a bit more positive. So we're going to look at what's been driving that, and we'll also uh, cover some energy-related ETFs. So let's uh, do that now. 
Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. 2% of demand versus 1% of demand is, is a pretty big shift. Energy companies have changed a lot. You know, they're generating significant free cash flow. They're buying back their equity. They're offering attractive dividends. Stacy, great having you back on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be with you. You know, I have no idea where the time has gone, but it's been about another three months since you uh, last joined me. And as I'm sure you recall, back at that time, uh, we discussed how energy was the worst performing sector this year. Now, I looked this morning. That's no longer the case. In fact, energy is now in positive territory, uh, believe it or not. If you look at the Energy Select Sector Spider ETF, ticker XLE, that's up about 3% year to date. So still significantly uh, trailing the broader market, but in much better shape than when we last visited. So it's up about 14% since that time. So that was around late May when you and I last spoke. So I thought to start... Just high level, what's been going on here over the uh, past three months or so? Yeah, Nate, when we talked at the end of May, that was really the low point for the XLE for this year. Um, May 31st was actually the bottom. Um, and then if you look earlier this month, XLE was actually at a tie for the year. Um, so we've seen you know, a pretty big swing over the last you know, three months or so. And the biggest change has really been oil prices. When we talked in May, oil was under $70.00. It was down about 13% for the year, and now oil sitting around $81 per barrel and up just slightly for the year. Um, so most of that improvement that we've seen in both oil and energy stocks was really in July and early August. Um, U.S. oil prices were up almost 16% in July alone, and we can talk a little bit about what's helped oil prices, but that improvement in oil is really what's helped energy stocks uh, get out of that last spot. Yeah, and a little uh, fun fact here. If you look at the trailing one-year returns, and this is cherry-picked, um, energy is actually the best-performing sector out of all of them, up 16% over the trailing one year. Now, obviously, that's on the back of a, a huge year last year, but I still thought worth mentioning, uh, especially given the remarkable run we've seen from tech and uh, communication services this year. Energy is still holding its own on that trailing one-year basis. Um, Stacy, I don't want to get off uh, – uh, the the path here, but you know, I always mention XLE when discussing broad energy. Uh, that's clearly the most popular ETF here. But when I was running performance this morning, you know, the second most popular ETF is the Vanguard Energy ETF ticker VDE. And uh, if if you look at performance, VDE is actually slightly outperforming XLE this year by about a percentage point, four percent to three percent. And again, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I was just curious: are there any real meaningful differences you would highlight between these two? Yeah, so I was comparing the two using our Logically platform, and at a high level, I mean, they have a lot of similarities. They have the same fee, very similar yields, very similar exposure. The VDE is a bit less concentrated. Um, it mm. still has you know, pretty good-sized positions in Exxon and Chevron, uh, but less so than XLE. And if you look at kind of the large energy stocks this year, Chevron has really kind of been the laggard. Um, they're down about 8% or so on a total return basis. Um, so for VDE, when you look at that outperformance relative to XLE, I think that lower weighting to Chevron is, is actually kind of helping with that. Um, one other thing that's kind of interesting is that Chenier is in VDE, but it's not in XLE. Hmm. Um, Chenier is a liquefied natural gas uh, export player. tends to be kind of a popular stock in this space. So kind of interesting that it's in VDE, uh, but not in XLE because it's not yet in the S&P 500. Yeah, I was just curious because if you look at assets, as I'm sure you're well aware, XLE has something like over $38 billion in assets, VDE quote-unquote, only uh, about $8.4 billion. Now, clearly, XLE is used much more as a trading tool, I think. And, you know, as with any Vanguard product, you expect more buy and hold. But that's a pretty significant difference. Um, okay, if we drill down further into the energy space, let me give you the returns from a handful of other uh, popular energy-related ETFs, ETFs you and I like to cover uh, or we've covered in the past. So the Alarian MLP ETF, ticker AMLP, that's up 14% year-to-date. The Vanek Oil Services ETF, ticker OIH, that's up uh, about 11%. Uh, 
And then the Spider S&P Oil and Gas Exploration and Production ETF, ticker XOP, that's also up around 11%. But again, similar to uh, XLE, there have been substantial bounces in OIH and XOP in particular since we last spoke. So uh, OIH is up like 31% since the end of May. Um, XOP is up 24%. AMLP is up about 8% during that time. So as we, you know, drill down a little bit further further here, have there been similar drivers as what you highlighted with XLE? Does it come back to oil? Or is there anything else you'd point to in terms of what's been driving this recent performance? Yeah, I mean, I think it does really come back to oil. I mean, for XOP and OIH, you know, you're looking at exploration production companies in XOP, oil field service companies in OIH. Both of those are really sensitive to what's happening with commodities. So, I think you know that big move that we've seen is is, is really a big recovery off the bottom as we've seen oil prices improve. Um, you know, MLPs have not had that big move since May, but that's because they've been performing pretty well, you know, overall um, through the course of this year. So, you mentioned they're up about 14% on a total return basis. Um, so, still kind of leading the way, even though. You know, they aren't as sensitive to what's happening with commodity prices and, and that defensive nature of MLPs, um, having less exposure to commodity prices has been a good thing this year when you think about, you know, oil basically being flat, um, and natural gas being down quite a bit. So, uh, MLPs have kind of been the, the steady performer all year, um, and kind of the clear outperformer, um, so far year to date. Um, and one other thing I'll just mention, you know, obviously MLPs get a benefit from yielding about 7.7% as of Friday. So when you're looking at total return performance, the higher yield the MLPs has, you know, certainly provides an advantage. Um, but because they're income oriented, I think people often think that MLPs are going to be negatively impacted by rising interest rates. Um, and that just simply hasn't been the case. This is not like utilities where there's that you know, high degree of interest rate sensitivity. So uh, pretty interesting to see this year that the ETFs you know, focused on the subsectors have you know, pretty noticeably outperformed XLE or VDE. Um, and again, I think some of that probably goes back to the weakness that we've seen in Chevron. How big of a factor has um, consolidation been here this year. I saw a tweet yesterday from uh, Alpha Architects' Ryan Curlin, where he was mentioning that consolidation could potentially be a driver moving forward. And as I think is clear to anyone listening to this podcast, I am no energy sector <laughs> expert, but I, I think I saw in a piece that you uh, wrote that, like in the MLP space, you had the uh, energy transfer planning to acquire Crestwood Equity Partners, uh, companies like Exxon and Chevron you know, looking to buy companies. Has that been a driver thus far this year? Yeah, consolidation has been a, a pretty big theme across the energy space this year. Um, you gave you know, good examples in the MLP space. The other kind of um, banner transaction that we've seen in the MLP space is the proposed acquisition of Magellan Midstream Partners uh, by One Oak. The vote for that is you know, coming up uh, on September 21st. Uh, but then, yeah, if you look broadly across the space, Exxon um, bought Denberry Resources recently or announced the acquisition of them. Um, Chevron, uh, back in May, announced the acquisition of PDC Energy. And then you've also seen consolidation in the oil field services business, um, both between public companies and public companies taking out pretty big private companies. So it's really been a big theme in the energy space this year, and I think it's really a natural progression for kind of a maturing industry. Um, and it also reflects, you know, this desire for scale and in some cases diversification. Or if you're a producer, you know, you're generally trying to get, you know, more drilling inventory, more drilling locations. Um, so even just yesterday, we saw Permian Resources acquiring uh, Earthstone. So there's been a number of transactions in this space, and I think you know consolidation is going to be you know definitely something that we'll be keeping an eye on, um, not just for midstream and MLPs, but for the broader energy sector. Going back to the uh, price of oil, I, I think every time you join me, we like to get a little more in the weeds on both oil and, and nat gas. And so if I look at say uh, USO, the United States Oil Fund. That's up about 17% since we last spoke, about 4% for the year. Um, Nat gas, so I'll use UNG, the uh, United States Natural Gas Fund. And 
by the way, I think everyone knows those aren't perfect proxies for the price of oil and natural gas because of how, how those funds are constructed. But UNG is up 10% since we last spoke in May. Uh, it's still down about 50% for the year. But um, starting with oil, can you give us some more granular drivers that, that we've seen this year? You've talked about at high levels or anything you know deeper here. Yeah, so I think, you know, when we saw oil start to rally in July, there were a couple things there. You had um, the U.S. dollar getting weaker, which is good for commodity prices, and oil is obviously priced in dollars. Um, and then you also had people just feeling better about the global economy. Your recession risk has been a big overhang on oil this year. Um, at the same time, you also had incremental production cuts from Saudi Arabia and Russia. So in June, Saudi Arabia announced that they were cutting an extra million barrels per day for July. That cut has been extended to August and now to September. And then you've also had Russia cutting exports alongside what Saudi Arabia is doing. So the physical market is actually getting tighter as well. Um, and demand you know, has generally held up pretty well. People may not realize it, but global oil demand is basically sitting at an all-time high right now. So that combination of kind of people feeling better about the economy and then also having the physical market get tighter has, has really been what's helped oil prices in the last you know month and a half or so. What about on the uh, natural gas side? And, and by the way, I have to mention, I, I think as you're aware, I'm here in Kansas City, and we're in the middle of a massive heat wave. The, the heat index is like 120 degrees every day. It's, it's absolutely brutal, and I don't know uh, how much that factors in, but uh, what, what's been going on with uh, nat gas? Yeah, yeah. So definitely can relate to you here in Dallas, where it's, True. you know, 110 every day. Um, so we've had, you know, a hot, hot summer, which has been, you know, positive in terms of natural gas demand for power generation. Um, you're still not seeing natural gas prices move much. You know, they're generally has been sitting around kind of 250 to 275. Um, and the low natural gas prices that we've really kind of seen all year um, are the result of the warm winter that we had. And we just didn't use that much inventory. And production in the U.S. has been pretty stubbornly high. Um, gas producers have done the right thing in terms of pulling back on activity. They're laying down rigs. They're not doing as much in natural gas-focused basins. But you still have a lot of natural gas coming out of the Permian in West Texas and New Mexico, where your producers there are really drilling more um, and their economics are really being driven more by what's happening with oil prices. So natural gas still just kind of remains um, a situation where you have too much supply, not enough demand to kind of clean up the inventory overhang that we had coming out of this winter. Stacy, just a few minutes left here. Um, look, we're now into late August. I haven't looked at the schedule, but I'm guessing you and I will visit maybe in another three months. And <laughs> if you had to pinpoint maybe two or three key things you're watching across, I would say the entire energy complex for the remainder of the year, what would you highlight? And I know we talked about consolidation earlier. Maybe that's a driver, but and feel free, if, if that is, to, to comment more on that. But just what would be two or three things that uh, you're watching? Well, definitely consolidation is something that we'll continue watching um, and just keeping an eye on in general. You never know kind of when deals are going to happen, but just kind of the environment that we've been in with a little more price stability in oil and you know, pretty low but stable natural gas prices, you know, this kind of environment can be conducive for deal making. So we'll just kind of keep an eye on that through the rest of the year for sure. Um, on the oil side, you know, really kind of continuing to keep an eye on supply and demand balances. Um, it'll be interesting to see if we see you know, Saudi Arabia and Russia continue these incremental cuts. You know, at what point do they start reversing those? We haven't really talked at all about China, but the strength or weakness of their economy is certainly going to be important for oil demand. Um, and just in general, how people feel about the global economy is also going to shape oil prices. So I think oil is probably going to stay in the driver's seat for energy stocks. And if oil continues to improve, then energy stocks are probably going to continue to improve as well. Um, and then, you know, finally, we'll keep an eye on natural gas. I'm not expecting any, you know, big moves there. I think in general, um, people get more constructive on natural gas into 2024 and 2025 as we have some LNG export projects start up in the U.S. 
Um, but you never know what can happen with winter. So we'll, we'll keep an eye on that as well. But um, you're certainly not expecting big moves there. Well, Stacy, fantastic perspective as always. And, and by the way, I should know better than to complain about the heat to a Dallas resident, right? <laughs> our, our highs here today are like a nice day for you in, in late May. <laughs> but uh, thank you it's so much. Relative. It is. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Thanks, Nate. Appreciate it. That was Stacy Morris, head of energy research at Vetify. The Motley Fool LLC has been recommending individual stocks as part of their subscription newsletter service for over 30 years. Now Motley Fool Asset Management has taken the Motley Fool LLC's top 100 analyst-recommended companies and put them into a single passively managed ETF. It's an instantly diversified portfolio of 100 top-rated large-cap stocks with market-beating potential, all in one low-cost ETF. For more, visit fooletfs.com slash ETF Prime. That's fooletfs.com slash ETF Prime. I'm now joined by Rachel Agrier, head of U.S. iShares product at BlackRock, who, of course, is the largest ETF issuer in the world. And here in the U.S., they currently offer over 400 ETFs, nearly $2.4 trillion in assets. And they've had several very notable new launches recently, which will be the focus of our conversation. Rachel is now on the line with me from San Francisco, Rachel, it's a a pleasure. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Okay, so I am showing 18 new ETF launches so far this year. It's been another uh, very busy year, as usual, at BlackRock. And that doesn't even include a very high-profile ETF filing in the iShares Bitcoin ETF, which I'm only mentioning up front here to let listeners know we will not be discussing that for obvious uh, (laughs) regulatory reasons. But, uh, Rachel, before we get into some of these new ETFs, I'd love to have you talk a little bit about how BlackRock approaches new products. And I'm specifically curious as to whether you think your approach is any different as the industry leader. Like, do you think that makes it easier or harder to bring new products to market? Because I can make the argument that if you're going to launch a new product, it really needs to uh, move the needle given your size. Otherwise, uh, what's the point? So I would assume there's a very rigorous due diligence process here. On the other hand, I could also see the argument that given your size, uh, you can afford to have some misses, right? So maybe it makes sense to just launch everything and see what works. So to start, can you just give us some insight into how you approach new launches? Absolutely. Um, You know, look, this is actually, this is something we think about a lot. Um, As you mentioned, we are the global leader in ETFs. We have more than 1,300 ETFs around the globe. And so we are absolutely committed to providing investors access to nearly every corner of the market. Um, And really with the aim of helping our clients achieve better outcomes when they're building their own investment portfolios. And so our goal and how we think about this is we want to be offering the most comprehensive and innovative product platform, one that's for every type of investor in any market environment. And so at a high level, when we think about bringing new products to market, we really stick to three key principles. The first is there has to be a sound investment thesis, right? We need to evaluate whether the product is likely to deliver positive returns over the long long term and help investors meet their objectives. Second, we ask ourselves, is this something that clients need? Like, what is the need that this is addressing? We want to make sure that we're building a product that clients are looking for and that we can also identify who the client target base would be that would benefit from this product. And then third, and this is really important, is this a strategy that's suited for an ETF? And this last principle is really about ensuring that we build high-quality ETFs. And it's about making sure that our products are going to work well through all market environments. Um, Every new product that we bring to market has to meet our own high-quality standard. 
So when we're thinking about putting our product pipeline together, one area that we're always closely looking at are the segments that are experiencing rapid growth because we want to understand what's behind that growth and we also want to understand whether we can offer something that's differentiated, something that's value added in the marketplace to meet that client demand. Um, I'll give you one example. Uh, an area today that's experiencing rapid growth is option-based ETFs. And this market has grown from less than $2 billion just going back to 2018 to more than $85 billion in assets in the U.S. alone today. And you know, clients have been looking to options-based strategies either for income or as a way to manage risk. So this is an area that we monitored for quite some time. We looked at, we went through these three key principles, and as a result, we've innovated in this area by bringing to market the industry's first fixed income buy right ETF suite. This is a product set that we're really excited about that delivers really unique sources of income to the investor. And then also we recently launched a suite of buffer ETFs that are designed specifically with the buy and hold investor in mind. And that provides investors exposure to the U.S. large cap market while providing a target level of downside protection. So innovation is a, an, a focus area for us always. And it's something that we're constantly um, you know, looking at ways in which we can be better. Talk more about the buffer ETF. So BlackRock did launch the iShares Large Cap Moderate Buffer ETF, ticker IVVM, and the iShares Large Cap Deep Buffer ETF, ticker IVVB. And I think it's important to mention those are being offered at a, uh, a, a cost or price point of 50 basis points, which is fairly significantly less expensive than competing products on the market. So why were buffer ETFs something that BlackRock wanted to get involved with at this point. Yeah, absolutely. And it really comes down to access here because historically options-based strategies were really difficult for your average investor to access. They were either limited, you know, to your point, to very expensive products or complex structures. Um, now, we saw and identified an opportunity in the ETF space to really change all of that. And that's what we were focused on. How could we deliver greater access at a, an affordable price point and design a product that is meant and, and for the buy and hold long-term investors? So buffer ETFs are for those investors who want equity growth. But at the same time, they're looking for some degree of downside protection should the markets experience negative returns. And so when we look at how these types of products are used by clients today, you know, we see some certainly who choose to use them tactically to express a short-term view on the market, but we actually see many more of them using these products to replace a portion of their core equity exposure to reduce risk within a portfolio. And then they're also a great tool for investors who are nearing retirement who want to add to their equity allocation while keeping risk in line. And, you know, when I think about these products and just where, how the markets have behaved this year, uh, I think it really kind of spotlights the benefit of this type of strategy. You know, we've, we've experienced higher yields, inflation, geopolitical tensions, you know, you name it. There's a lot of reasons for investors to feel nervous right now about the markets. And as a result, we've seen a lot of investors reduce their equity allocation and effectively sit on the sidelines in cash. We're seeing near record amounts that have flowed into money market funds, for example. Um, yet, at the same time, despite these headlines, we all know the S&P 500 is up about 15% this year. And, you know, you don't always know when the markets will rally. That's why trying to time the market is so difficult. We really believe time in the market is so much more important than trying to time the market. So the beauty of these products is that there are guardrails built in to help investors get over that hurdle by reducing some of that volatility and uncertainty and giving them confidence to re-enter the market. And this is exactly why we built these products with the long-term investor in mind. We see a lot of use cases being geared towards those longer-term portfolio holdings. A big portion of that is, of course, the price point at which um, we brought these products to market does represent the lowest cost buffer 
ETFs in the market today. Rachel, going back to the framework that you laid out for how BlackRock approaches new launches, you mentioned, you know, really three key factors. So having a sound investment thesis, a client need, and then is the strategy suited for an ETF? And as I was looking through your list of new launches this year, there were several that jumped out at me. Um, I'll I'll flag a few. So one would be the BlackRock large cap value ETF, ticker BLCV. So this is managed by uh, Tony Desperado, who's Global Chief Investment Officer of Fundamental Equities at BlackRock. And obviously, this seeks to outperform the Russell 1000 Value Index. But I, I mentioned at the top, I think it's noteworthy that BlackRock continues to push into active ETFs. And, and one of the other ETFs I want to ask you about is another mm-hmm. active ETF here in a moment. I just think that many investors automatically think passive when they hear iShares and and BlackRock. But Active clearly has a tremendous amount of momentum right now. So tell us about BLCV and I I guess going back to that framework, just more broadly, this push into Active. Sure. And um, I'm so glad you asked that question because, you know, if we take a step back for a moment, I think when people think about ETFs, just generally, they tend to think about indexing because that's their history. You know, the first ETFs tracked very simple market cap indexes. The majority of ETF assets continue to be invested this way. But that being said, the industry has evolved significantly, and ETFs are no longer strictly synonymous with indexing. And, you know, BlackRock, when you think of iShares, when you think of BlackRock, certainly we're known for being the world's largest ETF provider and a pioneer in the indexing space. But, you know, and as you point this out, our history and our legacy is rooted in active investing. And, you know, our firm, if you go back to when we originally started in 1988, it was as an active bond manager. And today we have almost 3,000 active investment professionals around the globe driving value for clients. So, you know, we've been running active strategies successfully for a really long time. And what we're doing here is we're bringing that expertise to the ETF wrapper. We're so excited about active ETFs, really, because it's a space that we believe we're uniquely positioned to deliver for clients within. We're marrying our expertise in active management with the world's leading ETF platform and technology. So as an investor in these types of products, you're going to get access to our industry-leading investors, along with all of the features of ETFs that we've come to love, you know, liquidity, transparency, tax efficiency. So this is absolutely an area that we have been hard at work on and continuing to build you know, our vision around a comprehensive active ETF lineup that's complementary to our existing index ETF and active mutual fund suite. So we've absolutely been seeing an increase in client interest across the board within active ETFs. And when we look at how they're being used by clients today, there's a number of different and interesting use cases emerging. We certainly see strong demand from fee-based advisors. They're being used as building blocks within models, but then at the same time, it's extending access to active management strategies um, and giving end investors new ways and new um, access points to active management. And so, um, you know, when we when we look at the products that we've recently launched, you mentioned our BlackRock Large Cap Value ETF. That is managed under the leadership of Tony Despirito, who's our global CIO of Fundamental Equities. Now, in addition to gaining exposure to large value stocks, what this product is looking to do is to outperform through selection of value stocks that have higher quality characteristics. So these are companies that have strong balance sheets, strong cash flows, you know, highly profitable. And that focus on quality really sets this product apart. It's very important today, um, just given the current market environment that we're in. Uh, The jury may still be out on whether we do ultimately enter a recession or get a soft economic landing, but we're seeing investors steering towards that more defensive stance. BLCV is really a great fit um, from that standpoint, from that standpoint, in terms of investing in quality companies that are trading at reasonable prices, you mentioned BlackRock's legacy in uh, active fixed income 
And actually, the other ETF I wanted to ask you about is this one managed by Rick Reeder, who, of course, is chief investment officer of Global Fixed Income at BlackRock. So the ETF is the BlackRock Flexible Income ETF, ticker BINC, which just already has uh, approaching $150 million in assets. It just launched a few months ago. But, you know, it's interesting. Fixed income ETFs overall have seen over $120 billion of inflows this year. And I noted that iShares makes up nearly half of that. Uh, But tell us about BINC. And I'd also be curious, again, what you think is driving this adoption and and growth of fixed income ETFs overall? Sure, absolutely. So we, too, are incredibly excited about BINC, or what we like to refer to as BINC, the BlackRock Flexible Income ETF. Um, So what does this product do? It's pursuing yield opportunities using a diversified and nimble approach. So it's giving investors exposure to those portions and sectors of the fixed income market that tend to be harder to reach. Areas like high yield, emerging market debt, CLOs. And you may be familiar with Rick's uh, core investment approach. He characterizes it as making a little bit of money a lot of the time. And really what that speaks to is the diversified approach. The fund today has a yield of roughly 7%. I mean, that's pretty incredible and has nearly 700 unique positions. So it does make it quite diversified. We believe that's a crucial component in fast moving markets. What we love about Bank, though, in terms of how it is designed, is that it is specifically constructed to sit alongside core bond exposures within a portfolio. So it allows advisors and investors to customize exactly how much yield enhancement they're after, how much they want, and doing so by complementing their core bond holdings. And as you mentioned, we have seen a lot of um, early investor interest in this product. We're just really excited about the value that this can bring to clients. Now, if we spend a moment just on the bond markets more broadly, you're absolutely right. The flows have been incredible. The adoption in bond ETFs, generally speaking, continues to just gain momentum. Um, and, and a big part of that right now is related to the yield levels that are available, just driving tremendous investor interest. If you think about it, you know, here's one stat just to give you 70% of fixed income sectors right now are yielding 4% or more. And, and that's the reason why a lot of people are calling this a once in a generation opportunity in yields. If you look at a ticker like IUSB, that's our iShares total U.S. bond ETF, very diversified product with over 15,000 bonds in it. It currently is yielding about 5.5%. So it really is no surprise when you look at, you know, the, the opportunity here in yields, the fact that we've seen, you know, over $120 billion in flows so far this year, um, it makes a lot of sense. We expect that to continue um, and, in fact, accelerate, continue to accelerate. Um, and beyond just this current opportunity in yields, the other reason for adoption is just how bond ETFs themselves have made the bond markets more liquid, more efficient, more accessible. And really because of this, bond ETFs have become a key part of the investor toolkit broadly, so much so that, you know, one thing that's really interesting to see is, is the adoption of bond index ETFs by active managers as a tool to generate alpha within their own portfolios. That's a use case that, um, you know, we particularly love to see. And, and part of that is because of the liquidity. The ETF liquidity makes it seamless for institutional investors um, like active managers, like model builders, to be able to implement tactical views within their own investment products, you know, completely seamlessly. Rachel, just a couple of minutes left here. Your last point is maybe a a good way for me to try to pull this all together, particularly uh, with active ETFs. And I, I guess the way that I would do this is we've all seen the data about how difficult it is for active managers to, uh, consistently outperform over the long term. 
And I would argue that's one of the reasons iShares has been so successful in the ETF space, right? This is what you were alluding to earlier, that investors have gravitated towards low-cost uh, index-based ETFs like IVV and certainly the uh, other iShares core products because they know they're going to capture something very close to the market return at a, a low cost. And so before I let you go, I'm just curious, how do you think about positioning the active ETF lineup given that? Like, how, how do you think investors should think about active? Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of people, you know, have this view of active versus passive in a portfolio context. But, you know, from our perspective, we actually think this is a bit of an outdated classification when you think about it. You know, today, and we, we spoke about this earlier, the word index itself doesn't just mean broad market exposure, right? There's factor indexes that are seeking to enhance returns. There's a growing landscape of thematic indexes that are available. Um, so today, when you think of index and active as a classification, it truly isn't binary. And, you know, historically, a lot of investors built portfolios in such a way that they did make those binary choices between an index strategy and an actively managed one. And, uh, you know, it's important to note that even those who favor index strategies aren't necessarily passive investors. They're making active decisions like which markets to invest in and at what weights. And, um, you know, as, as I mentioned earlier, index ETFs can actually be used to implement tactical active views. And at the same time, we also see active products that exist in the market today that aren't traditionally alpha-seeking, but rather they're really looking to deliver a given exposure to an investor or an outcome to an investor. And so what we are seeing unfold in the market today is increasingly investors are blending the two approaches in their portfolios. So rather than just focusing on index versus active, they're focused on how to use both together to achieve their objectives. Um, and, you know, we believe in clearly offering choice across the full spectrum. We're focused on meeting their objectives, and there will be times in which an index product is the way to do that and others in which an active strategy is the way to do that. And it's really about how to bring them together in a complementary way and use them side by side. I think all of that is really well said. And I'll just uh, reemphasize two of the points that you made, that when you look at the proliferation of index-based ETFs out there, there are ETFs slicing and dicing the market every which way imaginable. Mm -hmm. And you can make the argument that anything outside of very plain vanilla market cap weighting you're making an active decision. And then to your other point, certainly even plain vanilla market cap weighted uh, indices can be used in a very active way. But to me, I think you're right. It speaks to the choice and just the flexibility and the, the amount of use cases for the ETF wrapper overall. But um, Rachel, we're going to have to leave it there. Really enjoyed the uh, conversation. I'm very proud of myself for not asking you about the iShares Bitcoin ETF. So I, I stayed disciplined <laughs> here. But thank you for uh, joining me. Thanks so much for having me. That was Rachel Legrier, head of U.S. iShares product at BlackRock. Because commodities indices are more likely to represent the super cycles of yesteryear than today's new and emerging commodities regime, Newberger Berman's actively managed commodity strategy ETF seeks to transcend the limits of traditional indexing, offering both inflation insurance and an emphasis on the catalyst driving today's changing economy. Embrace the road ahead and learn more about NBCM at nb.com NBCM. An investor should consider NBCM's investment objectives, risks, fees, and expenses carefully before investing. This and other important information can be found in NBCM's prospectus, which you can obtain by calling 877-628-2583. All ETF products are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please refer to the prospectus for a complete discussion of NBCM's principal risks. I'm now joined by Phil Hanks, founder and CEO of Parabola, who back in April launched the Parabola Innovation ETF. The ticker symbol is LZRD. 
Phil is now joining me from North Carolina. Phil, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Nate. Thanks for having me on. Okay, so look, I always love a good background story, especially from a new ETF entrant. So I thought, let's start there. Uh, what made you decide to get involved in the ETF business to begin with? And, and how did this all come together with you ultimately launching the ETF? Well, I've, I've loved following the markets um, since I was a teenager and became an advisor in 2015. I've been training about 20 years, and it was just always a dream of mine to manage a fund. And uh, just looking at the other offerings out there, I thought there was kind of a need, and I like buying individual stocks for clients. Um, so I decided at, you know, kind of early 22 uh, that I really wanted to pursue launching an ETF. Um, I actually sold my book of business to raise capital uh, with the RIA that I had before and launched launched in April. And, uh, you know, I've really enjoyed it. And it's a tax-efficient strategy that, um, you know, if you're buying individual stocks and selling them in individual uh, clients' accounts, it's difficult to do so in a tax-efficient way. So doing it within the ETF, I felt like it would give exposure and scalability um, for pe- for advisors and individual investors to be able to utilize those things and look at the holdings that are in there. And I have to ask you, what does a parabola mean? Parabola is a mixture of parabola with O um, due to parabolic movements in the stock market and parable, simple illustrations, explanations such as those in the Bible. So if you look at my office, it's surrounded by Carl Richards drawings. Um, in particular, the lizard logo that I use um, implements his drawing of greed by when things are high and fear sell and repeat until broke. Um, so that's what a lot of people do and obviously what, what you want to avoid. But looking at those parabolic shifts in the market and, and trying to buy things when it seems to be a good opportunity to do so. Interesting. And I'm assuming, I think you just answered another question I had, which the ticker symbol LZRD, I'm assuming that stands for lizard? That's correct. Okay. Yeah. Very creative. Um, okay. So take us through the ETF, which is actively managed. Uh, just tell us what's going on underneath the hood here. Yeah. So underneath the hood, you'll see a lot of growth names. There's a considerable amount of large cap actually in there. It's a U.S. bias, multi-cap, multi-sector. I did put some discipline parameters around it um, just because people can be fearful when they hear the word innovation or just look at growth names that are more volatile. Uh, so it has to have at least six months after IPO before investing in it. Um, again, a U.S. bias, so investors tend to feel a little bit more comfortable with that, even though there is uh, some other global equities involved. Um, and it has to have a billion-dollar minimum market cap uh, for me to invest in it. Okay, so just to give listeners a flavor, if I look at your top holdings right now, I see uh, Rivian, Tesla, Robinhood, Block, Apple, Uber, uh, Snapchat, those types of companies. Do do you want to highlight one or two of those? It looks like Rivian is your highest conviction holding right now, and you can talk about that one or any of the other holdings. But I'd love to have you give us an idea on how you think about things. Right. So. I've been a big Tesla fan for a long time, and that was our top holding. We actually scaled it back a little bit because I'm looking at uh, Tesla's done well for a long time, and I think we'll continue to do well. Still have a lot of conviction there. Uh, but Rivian having a smaller market cap, I believe they have a, a great fit and finish, great vehicle that's uh, addressing the larger SUV and truck market rather well. Um, so I, f- I felt like you know, there may be more potential long-term upside, and they're also going to be adopting Tesla's charging standard in the future, which will, you know, give people ease of mind that they can travel far and wide without running out of charge. Um, but as an older millennial, I think it makes sense looking at a lot of those top conviction um, holdings and and seeing that I'm also biased largely uh to some some large mega cap names in the you know the higher weightings, which will hopefully mitigate disconnect between the S and P um, and Nasdaq 100 as as well. So 
you know, I'm definitely investing in some things that aren't in the major indices, um, but also have a decent amount of overlap with those. We'll talk a little bit more about that because as you went through the description of your ETF and then as I look at uh, the holdings that I just rattled off, you know, I can't help but think at least a little bit about an ETF like the ARK Innovation ETF, right, ARKK. From your perspective, how do you think you compare, you know, or contrast with that approach from Kathy Wood? So I've got a lot of admiration for Kathy Wood. I think what people saw and experienced in the past uh, where there was a lot of growth a couple of years ago, you had a lot of names that were early on and, and you know kind of uncertain in the near term how they would perform. So that was a big part of me implementing that that six month parameter and the billion dollar minimum, things like that to you know just kind of mitigate the the near term risk of fluctuation in the in the ETF price. Phil, just a few minutes left here. You know, we have a lot of listeners who are in the RIA business uh, or somehow associated with the asset management business overall. And I'll tell you, I've talked to a number of them who have actually thought about starting their own ETF. And I'm very curious as someone who has gone through that process, and you're obviously now looking to, to grow, what have been some of the biggest challenges? Like, what are some things that you wished someone had told you before you uh, entered the, the quote-unquote ETF terror dome? Sure. I, th- I think the biggest glass ceiling that you run into um, is people really looking at, like, is there at least $25 million in assets under management? Um, three years track track record, you know, things, things like that. So even though you have a good – you may have a good product that's set up for, um, you know, hopefully the objective, which is long-term, uh, long-term growth of capital – um, we've had a lot of conversations with advisors and, and these kind of hard hard things to get around. Um, so it's it's really important, like looking at my ETF, it's a bunch of liquid names, again, over a billion-dollar market cap. And, you know, that's kind of the, the main hurdles that we've seen is just in those conversations of we like what you're doing, uh, but we want to see more assets or a longer track history before we invest. Any other words of wisdom you would offer to somebody considering entering the ETF space? Um, definitely shop around for your vendors, you know, whoever you're, you're looking at launching it. Um, just, you know, we worked with Nottingham, and they did a great job. Um, but definitely check things out and make sure it's exactly what you want um, to do in the way you want to do it. And I feel like we accomplished that pretty well. Well, Phil, really appreciate the time. Where can uh, people find more about your ETF? You can go to Parabola. That's without an O. So Parabola.io. And the prospectus and holdings and everything are on there. Well, great. Well, best of luck to you. And thank you for joining me this week. Sure. Thanks, Nate. That was Phil Hanks, founder and CEO of Parabola. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. If you're interested in artificial intelligence and the investment opportunities it is creating, I would encourage you to attend Vetify's AI Symposium on August 30th. Registration is free at etftrends.com slash webcast slash artificial dash intelligence dash symposium. Next week, I'll be joined by Charles Schwab's Thomas Generazio. He's a senior trader on the Institutional Block Desk, and we're going to discuss best ETF trading practices. Uh, Thomas knows this inside and out. And then Armada ETF's Phil Bach will spotlight their recently launched private real estate strategy via liquid REITs ETF. Until then, have a great week, everyone. <laughs>